Thank you, Cliff. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Habakkuk uh, chapter 2, continuing our series through the book of Habakkuk, starting in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 18, and going through the end of chapter 2, verse 20, this morning. Habakkuk chapter 2, starting in verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The ability to recognize the real deal is both rare and valuable. We simply aren't very good at this. I know in our heads, in our minds, we tend to think that our gut, our instincts, our know-how and savvy will keep us from getting fooled. But in order to think that, we have to really just ignore the evidence. There are currently somewhere between 70 and 200 million counterfeit dollars in circulation just being passed around from one place to the next as if they were real money. Granted, I know that's a fairly small percentage of the the total GDP that we have that's been in circulation right now. But if someone were to hand you one of those fake $20 bills, you would have no idea. You would have been fooled. Assuming that this is the real thing, when in reality you've been given something that's fake. We are leading up to the NFL draft right now. And for months, years really, an entire industry has been focused on evaluating and ranking players so they can determine who are going to be the best. Who's the real deal? Who is worthy of their first round pick? And after all that thought, all that time, all that testing, all that film study, all that debate... All those rankings that they have. Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback of all time, probably the greatest football player to have ever lived, dropped to the 199th pick. They, the experts, the people who got paid for years and years to look at all the players and determine who's going to be the best, they thought there were 198 better players that year than the greatest football player of all time. They couldn't see the real deal when it was right in front of them. They couldn't recognize it. They were fooled by 198 fakes. Today's text is really about a similar idea. It's the the final woe that's pronounced against the Chaldeans for after they have conquered Judah. And this woe, this final of the five, is against their idolatry. Their worship of anything else as God. Their worship of anything other than the true God of Israel. You see, they had been fooled into thinking that the idols they had created, the things that they were worshiping other than God, that those were the real deals. That they were worthy of worship. And when we think about it, when we'll take two seconds to evaluate it, we are just like them. So from today's text, we'll see three facts about idols So that we might not worship them. Three facts about idols in today's passage. And the first fact about idolatry in today's text is that idols bear us no profit. We're not any better off because of our idols. 
They bear us no profit. Verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. This final woe is pronounced against the Babylonians who are coming to conquer Judah before God turns the table and judges them, the conquerors. And it's a clear response to the complaint of Habakkuk way back in chapter 1. In Habakkuk 1, 14 through 17, the, the prophet's complaining that these wicked outsiders who are going to come in and win the day, who are going to conquer God's people, that they don't even worship God. So why would God allow this to happen? What they're worshiping is their own power and might. They have their own gods, their own tools that they worship as if they were gods. And as we've seen throughout this book, some of Habakkuk's complaints don't really get a clear answer. He complains about some things, and God largely ignores some of those complaints. He doesn't answer them directly. We don't get a totally satisfying answer for why God is doing these things in this way. But the justice of God is still vindicated. And this specific complaint is shown to be valid because God's woe is coming against the Chaldeans specifically here because of their idolatry. Habakkuk complained about idolatry, and now God is saying, okay, Habakkuk, since you complained about it, I'm going to talk about it. Woe to them as they worship their idols. And in some ways, this fifth woe is, in chapter 2, it supports and explains the other four that we talked about last week. No wonder they steal to get what they want. They don't worship the just God. No wonder they think they can secure their own safety and legacy and their own strength. They don't worship the God who is mighty. No wonder they'll do whatever it takes to get what they want. The God they worship can't see what they're doing. And ultimately, when you worship a God of your own design, you will inevitably end up using and abusing the people around you to get what you want. Because what you want is your God. The reason an idol bears us no profit, ultimately, is because we're the ones who made it. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? None. Zero. If you make your God rather than your God making you, it's not going to get you what you want from it. It can't actually do anything for you because you are the one who's done everything for it. You made it. You own it. That's a common theme throughout Scripture, and it's a pretty central idea to the Christian worldview. The creator is therefore also the owner of all things. So just as God made us and therefore we belong to him, if we could somehow craft an object of our worship, or if we co-opt something that God has made and worship it rather than him, we're turning this idea on its head. We're worshiping the thing we've made rather than worshiping the one who made us. The idol can't profit because it only tells us our own lies back to us. Look back at verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. It's a teacher of lies, and it is so in two ways. This little idol that you've made claims to be a god. To not only represent, but to actually house, to contain a real God within it. Okay, liar. It is a hunk of junk. It's not a God. What kind of God could it possibly be if it didn't exist until I came along to make it? 
the idol is a liar. And I know today we don't really tend to struggle with literal and obvious idolatry, right? There aren't temples or shrines in the homes of most Americans with a little statue that we bow down to and worship. I get that. We don't have literal idols that we have in that same way. So it may seem like this point is so obvious that why am I taking a whole week to talk about idolatry? But do you know what one of the most common idols we encounter is? Money. For a lot of us, for I would even say most of us, even in this room right now today, money is an idol. Money and everything that comes with it. I mean, it feels like it has all this power over us, right? It feels like it has all the answers to all of our greatest problems. It feels like this is the God who can bring us profit. Literally so, right? But it's an idol. An object we have made, which we have now decided to worship, to orient our entire lives around, to factor into every single decision that we make. Every time we look at our bank account, every time we go to the store, every time I reach into my pocket, every time I think about who I am as a man, money is somewhere in the background for so many of us. But it's an idol. And what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A green image, a teacher of lies. Those little green pieces of paper with numbers and symbols and dead guys on them, they make for terrible gods. They're not worthy of worship. In fact, let's go a step further. If you were actually to pull out a dollar bill and look at it, if you were going to read your money, you will see on one side that it says this. This note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. Okay, that just means you use this to get stuff with it. Do you know what it used to say? Redeemable in gold on demand at the United States Treasury. So this money, this little bill, used to have a literal equivalent in gold that you could exchange it for. That's how much it was worth. This $1 bill is worth $1 worth of gold. Do you know how much a dollar bill is worth now? No, you have no idea. And neither does anyone else. A dollar is worth whatever someone will give you a dollar, give you for in exchange for that dollar bill. And uh, this isn't a sermon which is about to come a lecture on monetary policy and the gold standard. I promise. Even in the midst of a possible banking crisis, just let me make the point that this thing we've made is an idol. It only has the value that we give to it. It has nothing in and of itself. It controls all of our lives so much, and yet it is a liar. Any idol, any God we create, claims to have ultimate value, and when it does so, it lies to us. And we let it. But not only is the metal image of the idol a teacher of lies because it claims to be a God... But it's a liar because it can only tell us our own lies back to us. We're the ones who gave it, who invested it with all this meaning. We made it. And then we said, you idol, you are in control of my life and my happiness. I will worship you and I will find fulfillment. And then when things get tough, when we're looking for answers, what do we do? We turn to our idol and we ask it for direction and hope and fulfillment and the Dumb idol just keeps saying, uh, 
I am in charge of your life and happiness. You will find fulfillment and joy in your worship of me. It can only tell us what we have already placed into it. All it can do is lie to us, and its lies aren't even its own lies to begin with. We made it, and we gave it the lies that we wanted to hear, that we wanted to believe. And now we're content really just to lie to ourselves. We have to give it speech and meaning, because this idol can never be greater than we actually are. Still in verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. You see, one who is not a god cannot create one who is a god. One who is created cannot make a creator. The the finite cannot conceive the infinite. So whatever you have, whatever it is that you are worshiping, other than God, wherever you find satisfaction in, it can't give you anything that you haven't already given to it. You are the one who gave it everything that it has. We are a closed system and we need something outside of ourselves to give to us and make us something greater than ourselves. If I'm taking out of me to give to the idol, how am I ever going to reach anything greater than I already was? Let me illustrate that by thinking about the Tennessee Titans. The Tennessee Titans are a perfect example of this same principle. And if you'll allow me to vent for just like 30, 45 seconds, you might be able to see how this is true. Every time there is a problem with the Tennessee Titans football team, And because we have never won a Super Bowl, there is always a problem with the Tennessee Titans football team. But every time there is a problem with them, our solution is to always fire the guy in charge and to promote from within. Every time. In 2020, we had one of the worst defenses in the league. So what did we do? We fired the defensive coordinator and we promoted the outside linebackers coach into that position of defensive coordinator. We took the team that had one of the worst defenses, and therefore you would think also probably the worst outside linebackers. And we said, the guy in charge of the outside linebackers, he's the one we want in charge. Then we did it again in 2022. Our offense was the worst in the league with the worst passing offense in the league. So at the end of the year, what did we do? We fired the offensive coordinator and we elevated the passing game coordinator into that same role. The guy in charge of what we were worst at is now the guy in charge of everything that we have to do. We keep promoting from within, thinking that we're going to somehow solve the problem when we need someone who knows what they're doing outside of us to come into us and fix all of our problems that we have on the inside. It never works for the Tennessee Titans. And why would it? Up until now, we've been thinking that we know what we're doing. We've been trying within ourselves to be able to solve our own problems. And we thought that the one in charge was the one who was at fault. So we got rid of the one in charge, ourselves. And we replaced it with something that ourselves created. And now we're putting all of our hopes into it. We need something outside of us to come out, to come in and fix us. We don't have it within us to create our own gods who are worthy of worship. We need a God who is outside of us, who is greater than us. To come into us and in that find our fulfillment. To find what we're looking for. 
Idols bear us no profit because we're the ones who made them. They're usually getting their power from within us. So how could they ever give us more than we already have given them? If everything that the idol has is what we've given to it. Idols don't help us. They bear no profit. They cannot give us life. That's the second fact about idols from today's text. Idols give no life. Verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. You see, an idol can't give us life because an idol is not alive. And when we worship idols, when we treat them as if they have power over us, when we come to our idols and ask them to give us the life that we're hoping for, we are always going to walk away empty. The poor man cannot give you a loan. The naked man cannot give you his jacket. The dead God cannot give you life. And if we take a step back, we can see how ridiculous we look when we ask it to. That's the picture that is giving us in this verse. You are asking a block of wood to wake up. You're asking silent stone to move, to speak. You're walking into the department store and asking the mannequin where the checkout counter is. It's never going to work. And beyond that, there's no way to do that and not look like an idiot at the same time. Scripture even says as much in not only Habakkuk, but also in Jeremiah 10, verses 14 through 16. It says this. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. For he is the one who formed all things. And Israel is, his, is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. We'll focus more on the differences between these false idols and the true and living God when we get to verse 20. But back here in verse 19, the reason we look so stupid, the reason we have a woe coming against us, is because we're looking for life in this thing that we have created, which has no life in itself. Of course it's not going to be able to fulfill, to fulfill me. Of course it's not going to be able to make me live. I couldn't even make it live to have life then to give back to me. When we get down to it, there's just nothing the idol has to give to us. Still in verse 19, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? It can't give me anything. It's got nothing to give to me. That's the driving force behind this question. Can this teach? What could you learn from this block of wood? What can it possibly give to you? And again, we'll get more into the direct differences between idols and the real God from our text in verse 20. But I can't help but point out the obvious here. A real and living God has things to teach you. He has things that you don't already know that he can show to you, that he can reveal to you. The God of the universe knows more than you do. He has more than you do. When you and him aren't on the same page, guess who's wrong? It's probably the one talking to stone and thinking that it's going to talk back. 
God has things to teach you. Speaking of the same idea, Tim Keller has said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. You might just be worshiping a God that you've created in your own image. But because God has things to teach you, to show you, to to grow you, he's going to tell you things that you don't already know. The idol can't teach, but the God can. He's going to give you things that you would never have known apart from him. And occasionally, there's going to be some of these things that you might not like. That you might not anticipate or enjoy. I mean, Habakkuk certainly felt that in this book, right? He didn't get the answers he wanted when he cried out to God. And God taught him what he was going to do. What was about to happen. You might even say in some sense that Habakkuk didn't get the God he wanted. He didn't get the God who was going to fall under what Habakkuk wanted to happen. He didn't, want the, he didn't get the God who was going to listen to Habakkuk and say, you know what, that's a good point. I'm going to change my plans. He got the living God. The God he got is real. The God he got is the one who's in charge. The, the true and almighty God of the universe. He can and he does teach. Even when we don't love the content of his teaching. But even in the midst of this, something I'm comforted by. When I'm confronted with this reality. That God is going to, to say and do things that I disagree with. That he's going to confront me with his truth contrary to what I already believe. What I'm comforted by in these moments is that it's in those moments I tend to learn the most, right? It's when he tells me something I didn't already know that I learn. That I grow. That I'm able to become more like him. To, to see who he is and how he thinks, how he operates. It's in those moments that I know I am learning from a living God rather than a God of my own design. That's how I know I'm worshiping the real God. And ultimately, when we think about it, it's in those moments that the gospel is what comes to the forefront. I mean, on my own, I don't know about you, but on my own, I never would have gotten to the idea of the cross. Never would have occurred to me. If I'm thinking about how sinful people who don't deserve it might stand before a God who is, a God who exists, then I'm stumped. I would never have the idea, much less the the gumption, the the gall, to be able to stand before God and say, you know what, here's how this is going to work. This is how I'm going to be able to be with you. How about you humble yourself? How about you take the form of sinful flesh and for sin in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in me who is currently walking according to the flesh? How about that? How about you, God, not only become man, but how about you die as man? How about you die the death that I should die in my place and for me? And then... Once you've done that, you'll come back to life and then you'll give me that new life that you just got for yourself. That's how you're going to show me that you love me, God. Okay, I would never have thought of that. I would much less have ever thought that it might actually happen, might actually occur. But that gospel, that message, if he doesn't only con- not only conceive it, but enact it, 
Also, tell me about it. I'm never going to get there on my own. He has to teach it to me so that I can then respond in repentance and faith. What he teaches us is when we know he's the real deal. What he teaches us with. When he's the one who shows us something we didn't already know. That's how we know it's the real God, the living God, and not a hollow substitute. Still in verse 19. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath at all in it. The idols we fashion of our own design, they look pretty good on the outside, right? They're overlaid with gold and silver. They glitter, they shine. They draw the eye, they water the mouth, they set the mind spinning. They have all the appearances of exactly what we hope them to be. Exactly what we expect them to be. I mean, that's what makes them so attractive, right? The only reason Indiana Jones was able to keep the Germans from getting the Holy Grail is because all the false grails looked like they were the real thing. They looked like they would be the cup that has eternal life within it. That's why that Nazi guy died whenever he drank of it. If we saw the truth about our idols, that the only reason they look too good to be true is because they actually are too good to be true, then surely you think we wouldn't fall under them so easily. Those images on the screen may look like they'll give you the satisfaction and love and fulfillment that you are hoping for. But in reality, they're going to leave you just as lonely, just as unsatisfied as you were before. Your lust can't save you. It can't fulfill you. It can't give you life. It is a hollow substitute for the real love, the real communion, the real mutual self-giving that you're actually looking for. Our idols are just hollow substitutes. And, And when we recognize this truth, that idols give no life to us, then we should also recognize that every fulfillment and joy lacking in our idols actually only points to the reality and the fulfillment of that joy that we've been hoping for all along. That's actually found in God. C.S. Lewis pretty famously put that same idea this way. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And that brings us to our third and final fact about idols we can see in our text today. That God is better than our idols. He is the real thing. Verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. He's simply better than anything else we might worship in his place. But the Lord is in his holy temple. You see, the Lord is. He is, I am. He exists. He is alive. All throughout these verses, God's taunting mockery of idols has been with the assumption and implication that he is not like that. That whatever the idol is, he is not. The idol brings no profit because it has been created by man. But everything in existence is the profit of God who has created all things. Out of his infinite self, he has created all things that now exist. So whatever we have, whatever we have received, we've received it from him. 
It's all profit for us with no loss. There are no lies in him for him to repeat back to us. We have given him nothing. And as the creator, he is in no way a reflection of us, but as the creature, we are in his image. The idol gives no life because it's not alive. But God is so alive that out of his life flows all life. He breathed his own life into Adam and Eve, making mankind come alive. He now, today, is still breathing out his spirit on his people, making his children come to spiritual life. He is not silent. He is not speechless. For by the word out of his mouth, let there be light. There was light and all things. By the word that he has given us in his book, we come to life in and through him. He can and he does teach. He not only shows us what is good, but he shows us who is good. How his goodness has redeemed a sinful people to himself. He's not a hollow substitute. He doesn't only appear to be God on the outside. He is God all the way through. All that is in God is God. And now we arrive at verse 20, which begins with the claim that the Lord is in his holy temple. So before we jump to the the meaning of the temple here, let us remember that where the idols are fictions of our own creation, there is a God who is. See, we've been settling for images, for mirages in the desert, when the wellspring of life is right in front of us. We're exchanging the truth about God, that he is God, that he exists for a lie, that anything else might be able to take his place. We're worshiping and serving creatures rather than the creator. God is better than our idols. Not only does he exist, but he is surrounded by holiness and he is also accessible to his people. The Lord is, yes, but he is in his holy temple. Those idols, they're not holy. They're not perfect. They're not set apart. They're created out of stuff that already existed, carved from the wood that already was there. They're like us. They're creatures. But even as holy as God is, even in the Old Testament, even before the veil of the temple was torn and we, his living church, became the dwelling place of the Lord, he was already dwelling among his people in a particular way in the temple. So he's better than the idol in both respects, right? He's holy. He's therefore higher than us, higher than our idols, But he's also dwelling in his temple and therefore actually present with us in a way that a dead idol never could be. So when you forsake his worship, when you focus on the creature rather than the creator, when you look stupid and without knowledge by bowing before anything other than him, know that you are the one who's missing out. He's better than idols. So why waste your time with anything else? He's alive. Why speak to that which has no breath? He's able to teach. Why go somewhere else for your knowledge? He's holy. Why try to earn that perfection on your own out in the cold? He's present. Why are you looking everywhere else for what only he can give and he is there accessible to you? He's beckoning to all men everywhere. Leave behind the cheap imitation and come and worship the real thing. 
Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3, says this same idea. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. He is real and he is better than idols. And that ultimately answers one of Habakkuk's implicit complaints he's had throughout the book. Maybe even a complaint that you've had or heard about. Which is this. You know what? What if I want to worship a different God? What if I don't think that a God who would allow wickedness like this to prosper, even for a moment, is worthy of my worship? What if I would rather God be how I want him to be? I think ultimately that's why God ends this oracle of judgment against the Babylonians in this way. In verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple... Let all the earth keep silence before him. It's almost like he's dropping the mic at the end of his verse. He says, no idol is going to do for you. You have no other option. No other God who exists that you might run to. They aren't going to leave you any better off. They can't give you life. But the living God can. The living God does. So even if you might wish things worked out differently, even if you might think, you know what, I wish he would really do things in this way, you have to, at the end of the day, ultimately acknowledge that he is the God you've got. He's the only God who is. And I understand how in a vacuum that might be unnerving. That might even be frightening to us. I mean, if that's all we knew or heard, If all we had was the end of verse 20, then we might be tempted to think that the universe isn't in the best of hands. I mean, it sounds like he's saying, it is what it is, Habakkuk. You need to be quiet and deal with it. And in a sense, he is. But when we zoom out just a little, when we remember the context and the the fullness of God's character, his message in his Bible then we're able to understand the silence we're supposed to keep before him. The silence isn't berated submission, like a slave who's finally stopped talking back to its master. No. It's the silence of hope. It's the silence of trust. It's a silence with the full knowledge that God is better than our idols. That the creator is better than the creation. That he is of a completely different order. It's a silence with the full knowledge of chapter 3 and all of its hope. The full knowledge of the beginning of chapter 2, that God will give life and righteousness to those who live by faith in him. It's a silence with the full knowledge that God is good to keep his promises and has good plans for his people, which always end in our good. It's a silence with the full knowledge that whatever evil he has permitted against us, Whatever evil he's permitted by us pales in comparison with the evil he's permitted against himself. It's a silence that sits in awe of the cross. 
knowing that in that instance, the love of God and the justice of God are on full display. The God who becomes man and dies for his people. Man, that's a God I want to worship. That's a God who's worthy of worship. And it's my hope today that we will put away our idols. Put away our worship of anything else. Money, ourselves, our family, our job, our security, our hopes, our dreams, our children. That we might not orient our lives around anything else than who he is and what he's done for us. Let this be the day that we avoid this woe, that we aren't like the Chaldeans with judgment coming against them, who are worshiping their own nets, their own power, their own skill. Let this be the day when we set all that aside and we worship the true and living God, the God who is. Let us worship him and worship him as he is worthy of being worshipped. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to hear your word with your people. Thank you for being the God who is. Thank you for being the God who loves, who serves, who came, who saved. Thank you for being the God by whom we profit, by whom we have everything that we have. Forgive us for going to anything else and thinking that we might have our satisfaction there. Forgive us for our praise and adoration that we misdirect, that we focus on the creatures rather than, than the creator. Give us your life that we might not search for it anywhere else, that we might not try to find it through anything else. We love you and we thank you as the God who is and the God who is worthy of our worship. Help us to worship you today and every day as we should. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.